I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Brown, and joining me in the studio this week, we have sports editor Ben Burrows. Hello. Sports features writer Lawrence Osler. Hi, Luke. And columnist Tony Evans. Oh, pleasure to be here. A little later, we will also be joined by the familiar voice of our chief football writer, Miguel Delaney. In this episode, we'll be discussing yet another pointless pre-season trophy as Miguel dolls in from Turkey to talk all things Super Cup. Lawrence will be talking us through the introduction of VAR in English club football. And Tony will ask what on earth has happened to the Premier League's mid-table. But before we get to all of that, let's talk about the return of the self-declared best league in the world. Um, Lawrence, should we start with you? What new players particularly impress you over the weekend from the uh, from the ten fixtures? I guess the two standouts, or perhaps three standouts, I suppose if you include Daniel James, would be the Man United signings, uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Harry Maguire in particular. Both started the game, which was obviously Harry Maguire. We expected Aaron Wan-Bissaka, I suppose, was quite a bold move in a sense. He's still a young player playing his first um, home game for Manchester United at Old Trafford, but they both played. Superbly well. Harry Maguire was particularly impressive. Um, and then Dan James came off the bench and scored a goal. So they're the sort of three standouts. I think in terms of the, uh, the the lesser clubs, I suppose, the smaller clubs, um, Joe Linton. Joe Linton, is that how I'm pronouncing it? Ben, Ben's the expert. I believe so, yes. Was quite impressive. I think he's, I mean, we all picked him, I think, before the season began as the kind of potential flop of the season just purely on the price tag he's, he's worth a lot of money and I think if you look at his goal stats he's got sort of one he's scoring sort of one every three one every four but actually if you if you delve in a bit deeper he has got quite good assists and when you throw those in he is quite a useful player he looks like someone who's built perfectly for a kind of Newcastle team who want to get the ball up quickly who want to hold up the play and get midfielders joining up with attack so he looked quite useful and obviously um, Newcastle lost 1-0 to Arsenal but they they put in a decent shift yeah Another new signing that we probably didn't think we were going to be talking about this early on into the season, but that's obviously Adrian at Liverpool. Um, Tony Allison picked up that injury, um, but how kind of well do you think Adrian's going to be able to to slot into the team and and kind of have that goalkeeping role over the next few weeks, perhaps? Well, he's much better than Mignolet and Carrius, and um, actually, he's not better as such you know you couldn't say he's um more talent because Mignolet has plenty of raw talent but he's got he's got the right he's the right fit for a club team he's good with his feet he's a bit, of, bit arrogant a bit of swagger he'll talk to his defenders he'll dominate the box he likes catching the ball he likes coming for the ball so I think he'll fit in you know there will be a drop-off with Allison. but I think if this would have happened this time last year uh Klopp would have had his head in his hands and been Banging us, banging us on the wall. But you know now, I think he's yeah, he's quite relaxed about it. They, they look to get Allison back as soon as possible. But I think this is okay. And and you know, in many ways, the first big time injury has come to a player where they actually upgraded the squad in that position in the summer. So I think they've got away with us a little bit. Are there any teams that we're kind of particularly worried by, perhaps after that opening weekend? I mean. Um... 
I mean, we all thought Crystal Palace were going to struggle. They actually played pretty well. Newcastle, people were expecting to struggle. They lost, but like Larry was saying, they, they had a good game. So, Ben, who are we kind of worried about at this very early stage? I think the headline one would obviously be Chelsea. It really wasn't great, was it? Um, obviously, it could have gone a little bit different, uh, hitting the post twice in the first half. But, I mean, they looked like they were going to be a bit light at the back. And that was when they still had David Luiz this time last week. Zuma and Christensen were all over the place, to put it lightly. So I don't think that was exactly what Frank was looking for in his first game. It looks like they are even more reliant on N'Golo Kante than they've ever been right now. Uh, and good job it's going to get a lot easier today against the most prolific team in the country. So a um, lot of work for Lampard to do and obviously um, wasn't able to get inside of his new players to do so. So, yeah, a tricky few weeks ahead at least. It's weird though, because they actually started reasonably well didn't they I would say Abraham Abraham hit the post and they had good opportunities and it was, it was a weird 4-0 it didn't feel like a 4-0 that's, that's what Lampard that's what Lampard said in the in the press conference afterwards he said that the first hour they were well I think he kind of said they controlled the game I don't know if we'd go that far but yeah you could argue that if Tammy Abraham's shot hits the inside of the post and goes in it's a completely different game um, you know United talked all about their clean sheet and how they only got three clean sheets last season and well, that clean sheet was very, very narrowly not a clean sheet. So, I think Chelsea probably did better than a four-nil result. Um, portrays. I think the other one was Watford. Like Watford were quite concerning how they lost three-nil yeah. uh, to Brighton. It's, it's hard to tell at this stage. We'll probably find out over the next few weeks whether that was Watford are dreadful or Brighton are excellent. And probably Brighton with a new manager and a new system is is probably a bit of new manager bounce at Brighton. But Watford were really concerning at the end of last season. They sort of. Ever since that game, I was at the, sem the FA Cup semi-final where they came back and beat Wolves on penalties. and uh, Oh, no, sorry, an extra time. And ever since that, they've kind of looked a bit off the boil. They, they finished the Premier League season terribly. They got thrashed in the FA Cup final. Um, and they looked dreadful in the opening start. And it, it just, it wouldn't totally shock me if, you know, if this kind of continues, if it starts to be a little bit of pressure on Javi Gracia, which sounds mad because he's made a really good impact at Watford, but they famously don't hang around long managers at Watford and I think um, yeah that's that's a slightly alarming one as well Talking about struggling teams Tony you wrote this week about the growing golfing class in the Premier League and the absolute ease with which City beat West Ham and then Liverpool obviously beat Norwich do you want to run us through the piece that you wrote for us this week just briefly and kind of explain what made you come to the conclusion that these two results in particular could kind of hint at something quite troubling for the Premier League. Well, what was worrying is that Manchester City was so poor by their standards. They, you know, they started off, uh, they weren't ready for the season. Um, they were misplacing passes left, right and centre. Didn't have a great deal of energy with them. And you know what? It's a perfect opportunity for West Ham at home. A club that has pretensions to get into Europe, to get up and at them, attack them. But West Ham just sat off and they didn't do much at all. And what they did, they let City ease into the game. City didn't need to show the class. And in the end, it ends up 5-0. And you know what? It just struck me that this was City will never be weaker. And West Ham will never have a better opportunity. And you know what they did? They just went, oh, we can't win this. And, and, you know, they didn't even try to keep the score down. They didn't park the bus. And people talk about the golfing money, saying our city is so rich in the players they've got. But you know what? Effort doesn't cost anything. And I didn't see any effort from the West Ham team. It was absolutely shameful. You know, they, they should have been dragging themselves off the pitch, left everything there. And, you know, maybe lost 1-2-0, being worn down by City eventually. You know, City got things going a little bit in the second half. But they didn't. I mean, you know, you, you look at the... Um, um, 
the third goal, uh, De Bruyne was allowed to run 40 yards <laughs> without anyone having a challenge. Well, what's going to happen then? He just, you know, uh, knocks it to Sterling, Sterling puts it through the keeper's legs. Uh, Sterling's final goal, the, the fifth, it was like a training ground goal. He sort of walked into the area and like sort of just slotted it round the keeper. You know, so casual it was untrue. And it was just... If if this is going to happen, what will do will justify the big clubs when you know we've written about the, uh, the changes in the Champions League coming. It will justify the big clubs going. Oh, now our competition, you know, man, we want to go to a, somewhere where you know we're and and it was just terrible. I got embroiled then with Norwich because Norwich um, Norwich got beaten obviously at Anfield with four 0 down by half time. And again, uh, where, where there are mitigating circumstances for Norwich, quite a few of them, a bit of stage fright as well. But even now, they didn't approach the game in the right way. You know, on, on the first goal, you know, they, they fall asleep from a Liverpool throw-in deep in their own half. They, um, on the midfield, track them back. Well, you call that track them back. Listen, with my bad knee, I can get back faster. <laughs> and, and it was like, yeah, and they had a reasonable second half when Liverpool, you know, sort of Liverpool shut packed in, you know, forget it. But it's, you know, and Norwich will do better. They'll play better. And as I say, there was a bit of stage right there. But even so, the, it struck me they never come to Anfield thinking, you know what, what great start to the season it would be if we can nick a point. You know what, let's make life miserable for these. We know they're the European champions. We know the goods. We know the quick. But, you know, let's let's rough them up a little bit in midfield. Let's get at them. You know, they press hard. Let's press even harder. Let's, let's give everything. And if they would have done that, and got beaten, you know, and blown away. You go, well, you know, sort of fair play to them, but they didn't really. But what, what's strange, I think, especially is that in the reaction you've had to the piece, there's been a lot of West Ham fans and Norwich fans, you know, as you would guess, sort of saying things along the lines of, well, you know, teams have to be pragmatic against teams like City and Liverpool, and you, you're not likely to win, so what's the point in going for it? You know, you, you're probably going to get beaten. But I suppose what you're saying is that you might, you, you could go incredibly attacking and try and upset them on the break, or you can part the bus and go into it with a kind of more defensive mentality, but pick a mentality. If, you, if you're yeah. just caught in between, there's kind of no chance of either. And more to the point, give 100%. I mean, what I can't believe is that fans, especially Norwich fans, who travelled all the way up to, um, to, to Anfield on a Friday night, they come away from that thinking, feeling good about it. You know, you, like, you're 4-0 down after half an hour. You're like, come on, I want to see a bit more. And clearly they saw a bit more in the second half. But I want to see it from the first whistle. And, you know, as I say, this, this is something, if people are saying they can't challenge the big teams, then the big teams at some point are going to go, well, you know, we need to go somewhere where we are challenged. And uh, as I say, I, I don't like the mindset where people are writing off two games a season or four games a season, say Liverpool and City and saying, you know, well, we're not going to win there, so so why bother? You know, assume we're on that slippy slope like the FA Cup where you're playing weakened teams against them and, you know, and you don't mind how, how many they run up. It's ridiculous. You know, when when Jose Mourinho was at Chelsea for the first time, he had a lunch, for, you know, sort of all the boys, and he talked about how the standards in the Premier League, he said most players, there's a cigarette paper between them in terms of ability. What it's about harness and their ability and how you do it. And and I, th I think he did say there are a number of special players. You know, we were, at the time it was Steven Gerrard and uh, Frank Lampard, you know, he was talking about. There's always special players, and they'll always play for big teams. But for most of them, the, the you know, the standards are similar and you know you've got Rodri a, a you know a big money signing 
He's playing for City, Premier League debut. First 10 minutes, he makes a couple of mistakes. He gives the ball away right in front of his own box. And one thing about foreign players coming over, they always talk about the shocked by the pace and physicality of the Premier League when they first arrive. They get used to it, but it's a common thread. Managers too. You know what? Did they put under pressure with pace and physicality? No, he didn't. They let him ease into the game and he was excellent because he's a very, very good player. And he got time time and space so he could pick his passes you know he could he could like sort of like do a little shimmy and no one no one's putting him under pressure no one's saying to him life here is going to be hard so he's probably talked to other players who played it come here before and they've said oh you know it's tough the first few weeks he's probably going on what are they on about with, with, with the kind of impending changes to the champions league which you've written about which is obviously that the the big six or even four clubs from england could split away and it's going to be a lot harder for clubs to kind of break into that what do we think, in light of these two results, actually makes a good league? Because people talk about the Premier League like it's the best league in the world. Is the best league in the world having four or six of the best clubs in Europe and having the absolute privilege of watching them every week? Or is it having 20 teams who maybe aren't going to win the Champions League every single year but are going to be competitive amongst themselves? I think the idea, like we've, we've said, the sort of the like Norwich, I would say, have got mitigating circumstances from the fact that it's their first day. It's away at a big ground where they're even if they give their absolute best, there's a very good chance they get a hiding. But so that's been, but that kind of idea has been around forever. So like the Fergie United teams, you go away to your old Trafford and you take a three 0 as soon as you walked in. That's not new. I think the idea of West Ham being at home first day, like Tony said, their best chance, City at their lowest point. That's the disappointing thing, especially when you've got, like you said, those, those special players. When Jose first came over with Lampard and Gerrard, they were exclusively within the top six five teams. Whereas now you've got like a Felipe Anderson or you've got guys further down the pyramid who are excellent players who can make the differences in these games, especially if City are off the game. I think, yeah, to go for your question, it's, it's. I mean, the Premier League themselves would say they want to be competing at the top end of the Champions League. So the overall quality of the league is defined by how well those clubs do. But I think from a, a fan of any of the other teams, you obviously want that competitiveness. It was part of our pre-season prediction pieces and one of the questions one is was is the Premier League the best league in the world and I said yes but not by as far as it thinks it is mm. and I think that's where we're at now I think it's it's still a a good prospect but if you look at some of the games this weekend the sort of the three o'clock games when you get a City and a Tottenham playing against each other the quality outside of those sort of three or four games this weekend is is quite poor and it, it might, there might be some competitive games between those, but the gulf is, does feel like it's widening. Another interesting thing is how Norwich, Sheffield United and Aston Villa have all come up to the Premiership, Premier League and have got reputations for playing good, attractive, fairly exciting to watch football. Um, is there any reward now in coming up or, or being one of the so-called smaller teams in the Premier League and playing quite a defensive agricultural style where you're looking to steal a point and stay in the league, a la Tony Pulis, somebody like that, because it seems like the demand from fans, in lieu of watching teams like City and Liverpool on Sky Sports every week, is that people want to see exciting football. And so you might as well come up, at least give it a bit of a crack or get sliced open a few times, rather than come up and try and kind of defend every single week and just, just cling, cling on to your kind of Premier League status. Yeah, I mean, I think almost coming back to your question about what makes a good league, what makes a good league is having a variety of different teams who can compete with each other but also have very different styles. And so I think it's interesting that a team will come up and play like Norwich who might try and be open, try and be expansive, but also a team might come up, let's say Sheffield United might be a little bit more 
robust, a little bit more compact, I suppose. Um, and you have those teams who are prepared to come up and actually, you know, make it really difficult for teams to do a bit like what Burnley have done, that kind of Burnley model in the last couple of years. So I think it's 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 you want a bit of both, don't you? You want a bit. You, I think it's really nice that Fulham came up and they tried to play that way and it and it failed miserably. But that's not to say it always is going to fail. I mean, we saw going back to a team like Blackpool when they came up and they for six months of the season played brilliant football they scored tons of goals they fell away at the end of the season because their defense was terrible but there, there is there's no sort of set way of doing it i think i think it can be done you can come up and play attacking football but i mean jose Mourinho was a um he was a pundit this weekend on sky sports most people would have seen that is very interesting i thought and he talked really interestingly about that the sort of difference between tactics and um what was the sort of game or what was the phrase sort of game um Management sort of game, game principles yeah. essentially and how you can be attacking or you can be defensive but as long as you've got that kind of set game principle of of being compact Chelsea were very expansive and they let United play through them then you can succeed whatever tactics you use and I suppose that is kind of the core thing Norwich didn't really have a kind of mm. they had a game principle of passing the ball but they were just very open and let Liverpool cut through them I suppose that's kind of more relevant than the individual tactics. Well, I mean, what you've got to do is, no matter how you play, you've got to look at the opposition and say, this is what they do well, we need to neutralise that. Especially if you're playing against City and Liverpool. And you mightn't be able to neutralise it, but you've got to at least pay lip service to it. And Norwich didn't. And as I say, um, th- this wasn't meant to be Slaughter and Norwich, <laughs> and who I wish well, you know. It's, um, and I, I just thought they were very naive, very naive, and really didn't work hard enough in Anfield. It's West Ham, really, I'm having a go at, because West Ham have a fair amount of money. They've got some good players there, some real talent, and and they just never bothered. It's as if their season starts this week against Brighton, and um, and that's just not good enough. Do you see Arsenal, Chelsea on last weekend's evidence, potentially Manchester United, do you see those teams having much more of a chance? Because I remember last season when... Arsenal played Liverpool and it, it was it was kind of a similar match. They went there, they didn't they were kind of caught in two minds. Emery didn't really want to sacrifice his kind of attacking principles, but they didn't really go for it and they they end up getting absolutely annihilated. I don't think any of the, those three teams will be significantly improved from last year. I think um, you know United's won four 0 and everyone's positive and Maguire's a good sign, Wan Bissaka is a good signing. And you know, but I, I think what they got is um, a nice half volley to start the season. They dispatched it for four, as they should have. Um, I think Chelsea are in real trouble, um, and and Arsenal. Well, they, they, you know, it's almost as if Wenger hasn't left. I think we said this last week. You know, it's uh, the same patterns uh, are occurring, and I don't really see that they're, they're going to improve. Going back to you know, sort of fans of the mid clubs and the lower clubs wanting to um, see good football. You know, we're going to get beat, but we want to watch good football again. It's like Wengerism's infected the whole of society. It's just wrong. You know what? There's nothing entertaining about good football and getting spanked. The only thing that's entertaining in sport is winning. Okay. Well, uh, thanks, guys. When we get back, we'll be talking about the introduction of VAR in the Premier League and our jet-setting chief football writer Miguel Delaney will be dialing in from his late summer holidays in Turkey. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. VAR, of course, made its long-awaited Premier League debut last weekend and immediately became a hot talking point with controversial decisions in a number of different top flight games. Lawrence, last week you had the privilege of being whisked away to VAR HQ for a kind of in-depth look at how the system is going to work this season. Um, and you've written today about how the top flight is actually planning on implementing VAR. So do you want to start off by just explaining as best you can really how the Premier League wishes to implement VAR and then also a little bit about the differences between the MLS and the Bundesliga? Yes, so um, VAR's been sent down by IFAB with a it's like stage 14 of their... Um, protocol on how VAR should be um, implemented. It's up to each individual league how they go about implementing it. So the Premier League has basically set out to um, follow the principles that IFAB has set out, but also to um, have minimum interference in the game. So there's two kind of main things that the Premier League has set out to do. So one of them is to limit on-field reviews. So those are the situations where a referee, we've seen this quite a lot in the World Cup, where the referee goes to the side of the pitch has a look at a monitor. We saw that in the Champions League quite a lot with those controversial handballs. Comes back onto the pitch. That takes a lot, lot of time. It's quite confusing and it's quite sort of controversial. You know, it's, it stokes up a bit of uh, what's the word, sort of antagonism in the in the stadium itself. So, Premier League didn't want that. It wanted it, decisions to be done a lot quicker. So, although the ultimate decision is with the referee on field, the they've been encouraged in the Premier League to listen to the advice of the VAR in their ear and go with that decision and, and trust their judgment um, when they think a decision should be overturned, which because it's clearly and obviously wrong. The second thing is um, that referees are supposed to judge or VAR are supposed to judge uh, incidents which only occur in the immediate phase before a goal. So one of the incidents this weekend that was controversial, that was certainly a bit of debate about, was Harry Maguire possibly committed a foul on Tammy Abraham in the lead up to Manchester United's second goal. Now, a few Chelsea fans I saw said, why wasn't that reviewed? Why wasn't the game taken back? The reason for that is because, according to the Premier League's um, protocol, the defence had reset, and there isn't really a clear definition of what reset means, but it's a kind of um, subjective view on when a defence is in position to defend a fresh attack, and that's where they take the game from. The, the idea behind that is that they don't want to be going back a minute, two, three minutes before a goal is scored and saying, oh, actually, we found a foul throw, we found you know, a very small infringement, which would really break up the flow of the game. They just purely want to pick up on little moments that happen in the instance before a goal is scored. So what's the difference? Because until I read your article, I didn't know quite how differently VAR has been implemented. So, so the stuff with the MLS and the Bundesliga. So in the Bundesliga, you've got this kind of like incredibly strict implementation yeah. and then in the MLS we've got almost this kind of like slightly more cricket style yeah kind of laissez-faire style so the Bundesliga not to live up to 
national stereotypes. But the Bundesliga is um, quite strict and detailed in the way that it goes, uh, that it implements the system. Um, it's been doing, it, I think, two seasons now, and the big blow-up incident happened at the end of the most recent campaign. Just as Bayern Munich were about to win the title, they were at Leipzig, it was all square. A ball gets smashed into Robert Lewandowski's feet, sprays around for a moment, comes back into the box, gets scored. They all celebrate like mad. They've won the title and then the referee pulls back the game. And the offside, if you want to look it up, it is absolutely minute. It is Robert Lewandowski's big toe poking over the defensive line. He doesn't even know the ball hits him. It just gets smashed at him. So it's it's one of those which obviously drew particular attention to the the sort of minutiae of the law and stoked up a huge debate in Germany about the about the rules and whether they're going too far with the implementation. The other alternative to implementing the black and white offside onside that the Bundesliga does is the MLS, which um, uses the clear and obvious principle. So it's the same for red cards, the same for penalties. If it's a clear and obvious mistake the referee's made, they have a quick look at a couple of replays. Oh, that was definitely offside referee that's offside if they ever look at a couple of replays like that sterling one that we talked about earlier there's no way you would say that that's clearly and obviously offside with a couple of replays even slowed down so you'd say ref might be offside not sure happy for you to go with the, the assistant's original decision and sterling's goal would have stood so in the mls sterling's goal would have stood in the bundesliga it wouldn't in the premier league we've obviously gone with the bundesliga yeah. model and um, sterling's goal was ruled out ben is the problem i mean personally I prefer the MLS model, but it's the problem with that that you're just essentially changing one quite arbitrary line for another one. Basically, yeah, it feels like. I mean, I'm sort of. I am. I would say I am pro VAR, and I think a lot of the critics are basically have been saying for ages that we want the laws of football to be accurately and uh, accurately enforced. And now they're saying, but not that accurately, please. So it's always going to be a tricky line to do. I, I mean, I'm not. We'll go on to it, I'm sure. I don't believe in any way it's sort of destroying the euphoria of football. I would much rather be talking about when the Man City-Tottenham game in the Champions League last year, I'd much rather be talking about our VAR stopped some City fans from celebrating than Tottenham got kicked out of the Champions League because they missed a massive offside. But, but, but regardless of where you stand or what you think, it, it does destroy that moment of euphoria, doesn't it? When, you, when a team scores a goal, because suddenly it's gone from, you know, kind of the ultimate outburst at a football match to being this kind of emotion which is tempered because you're in the back of your head, you're thinking, oh, well, we might have scored, but we better wait for this VAR check in 30 seconds' time. Well, I mean, I think people will still celebrate. I, I mean, that, that seems to me to be the least of the issues, uh, what people talk about. I, I think there's, there's bigger problems. I mean, the way the offside rule has been implemented, I think we need to look what's offside about is this what was meant to do the offside rule? It was meant to stop people effectively goal hanging, and this is not stopping people goal hanging. Um, and maybe that needs a, a, a wider look at it. But what 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 strikes me and the experience in American football of instant replay is you start freeze framing things and taking them down to one two thousandth of a second, and still you can't exactly tell what's you know with any with absolute certainty that that you're right or wrong and it takes away the spirit of the game i mean in the in the nfl they started changing the rules because of instant replay instance the famous tuck rule which is, is really absurd the quarterback pulling the ball in and um sort of whenever there's a fumble and it's really absurd and it's changed the whole nature and it's taken away the spirit of the game and i think there's a danger of that um i, I think if you if you implement it properly and i think the mls have the better idea where 
you know, you look at it, if it's not a clear and obvious penalty, if the lad's four yards offside, well, I'm all for reviewing it, you know, and saying that's definitely not a goal because how many times we've been sitting in games and we're like, referee's a mile off and, and the, the goal's been given. So I'm all for that. And, you know, uh, again, in the Champions League, City against um, Tottenham, you know, you think they got it right but the, but the sterling gold you, you, there's no one in the world who could have said with any certainty that that was that was a clear mistake i mean the the west ham defenders didn't even appeal i think yeah with the i think the sterling one raises two issues one is the actual detail of whether the decision is accurate so that you know these var isn't automated it's done by a bloke in a studio in london who has about 30 seconds to get his Hawkeye technician sitting next to him to exactly freeze frame in a 50 frame per sec, 50 frame per minute, uh, sorry, 50 frame per second um, replay when the when the foot is made contact with the ball, then he's got to freeze exactly where the defensive line is. Then he's got to get his 3D lines out and point that up to the armpit of Raheem Sterling. Like it's not a, it's not 100 percent accurate. That is just a fact. And so, are we happy that we're using uh, we're using a technology which isn't accurate? And then and then this. The second thing is almost like a broader, we talked about this earlier, Luke, a kind of broader, almost philosophical point. Like, do you, in life, in broader life, you accept that there are rules and there are laws and they have some kind of leniency and they have some kind of give to them. And do we want our football to kind of reflect this strange situation where every single tiny infringement is enforced to the letter or do we actually want to have kind of reflect normal life where you do have a bit of leniency you do have a bit of kind of common sense come into it I mean common sense to me would say Raheem Sterling's goal should have stood and it's a shame that it was wiped out the other thing that I really dislike is we're now just to extend the kind of football and cricket similarity but we're getting to this kind of strange point where you can almost essentially be watching different formats of football which is something I first noticed last season mm. with the Champions League and where you've got <laughs> players of trying to boot it into each other's arms in the penalty box and you've got this kind of strange handball or which you would then watch the Premier League or the Football League at the weekend and that wouldn't even be considered as an infringement and, and you're going to get huge differences between tournament football between Champions League between the Premier League if they're interpreting it slightly differently between kind of grounds which can't even implement VAR in the first place and you're getting this kind of strange kind of thing now where f- football's completely unequal Yeah, I do think it's actually one interesting thing is that uh, it's David Ellery, isn't it, who's head of IFAB. Yeah. And he, so he was a former Premier League referee. And so actually um, he's keeping a really close eye on on the Premier League. And I think actually the, the Premier League, what happens, the big incidents that happen in the Premier League this season will have an impact when the IFAB, they have their next meeting in March. Um, and I think actually we could see the, a lot of the big incidents in the Premier League shape how the game progresses from here. And hopefully that will kind of infiltrate World Cups and it'll infiltrate Champions Leagues and we'll have a bit more of a, a sense of this is, you know, a unity and, and how we, how VAR is implemented. Just before we move on, do you have any kind of indication which way the Premier League is leaning? Do you think it will go more towards this MLS model, especially following the, the fallout this weekend? Yeah, so there was a new story that came out yesterday which said that um, IFAB are already given since the Sterling incident looking at uh, whether to change the rule to clear and obvious rather than the, the black and white. Um, I, my instinct is that Unless the Premier League has its own Lewandowski moment, like a real, not just Sterling 2 0 up at Guerrero. Aguero, Aguero winning goal. Exactly, yeah, like that kind of critical moment towards the end of the season. City against Liverpool, Mohamed Salah's offside, whatever it might be. Unless we have that kind of moment where the, 
the fans are enraged and the media really start to question the validity uh, and veracity of the of the offside rule. And I don't, I think we've almost, I think you said this earlier, but we've kind of almost gone so far that now do you want to, peel it back and be less accurate I don't know yeah, I mean there's no going back once yeah. you apply it even if you're against it there's there's no going back um, I think uh, but I think you've got to you've got to look at the rules and see how you can implement them in the most sensible and common sense way and one of the one of the things we've seen over the last so oh, 20-30 years is them taking common sense out of refereeing and it hasn't worked so I mean Common sense is generally good. <laughs> I think I think um, like with most things, most new rules, most most new concepts, it's never going to be a hard and fast thing, and it's certainly not going to work straight away. I think it, VAR and everything around it isn't going to look like this in twenty weeks' time, in thirty-eight games' time, in two years' time. I think if, like like Tony said, if people are using common sense, and this is going to be quite fluid. And it is basically a test case almost. It's strange that there's an awful lot riding on it. And if they could change the rules halfway through a season, which would be wild given that West Ham well, City didn't benefit from it in the first game, but then they could benefit from it in the 25th game is pretty crazy for the sort of integrity of the league as we spoke about already. But I think, yeah, if they're doing, if they do as they should, it's they should use it as a test case and iron out the kinks as they go. And I think, you, I think we can try and trust the process that, yeah, they've opened Pandora's box. It's not closed again. Mm. So, And just to add to that final point to that, that one of the really clear things that was made obvious going to visit the VAR hub was that um, the Premier League product is at the very heart of this. So, you know, they haven't just winged this. That You know, they've spent millions and millions on preparing for this, trial games in the FA Cup and the League Cup. And at the heart of it, they want to protect, the clubs want to protect the product of the Premier League. They're the ones who own the Premier League. Yeah. So they, they will always prioritise, you know, making it better and improving it. And the Verhub, presumably, it's like a bomb villain's lair. <laughs> it's got to be, hasn't it? Very much so, yeah, yeah. Blofeld with a cat, yeah. <laughs> Moving on, Miguel Delaney is in Istanbul for the Super Cup match between Liverpool and Chelsea. And I spoke to him a little earlier and started by asking him whether anyone even cares about the competition. It's probably a slight upgrade on a European Community Shield, but not by much. Um, and it's one of those things that if you lose it, it's easy to write off as not mattering. If you win it, it's nice to say, well, another trophy to add to the collection, you know, so, uh, something else to rack up, something that maybe Guardiola or Mourinho would consider. And maybe Klopp too, given this could potentially be his second piece of silverware. Uh, I, su- I suppose it's far more relevant, actually, in terms of what it means for the clubs going forward, particularly Chelsea, um, given how badly they started the season and the danger that any defeat could be a quote-unquote crisis. Is, yeah, is winning more important to Chelsea um, rather than Liverpool purely because if they win, it might kind of galvanise them and set them up for the next few matches. But if they lose, like we're already going to get this quite tiresome um, kind of crisis narrative spring up. I think it's more about the performance, maybe. Winning or losing isn't necessarily that uh, important with Chelsea. This is actually kind of the same at um, Old Trafford on Sunday in that the moral victory of a narrow defeat would have been fine because they, they want kind of signs of progress. And I think it's pretty much the same with the Super Cup. That that's, that, that's really what it's about with Chelsea at this stage and with a team like this. It's about showing or giving indications that there's a good foundation there. In, in your in your piece on the up on the site, kind of previewing the match, you've written about 
the strong bond that exists between Abramovich and Lampard, which goes all the way back to, to when Lampard was obviously a player at Chelsea. Do you think he's genuinely got a lot of time? Do you think he's got this season kind of come what may to, to bed in and to, to start actually producing results? Or do you think that could all kind of come come to pieces pretty quick? Yeah, and I, I think just for, for various factors, uh, including that connection between Lampard and Abramovich, um, he will get that time. Because I don't think, this isn't just about time for, che- for, for Lampard, it's also about time for Chelsea. I think the appointment's very strategic in that way, in that this could have been a lot worse for them, or the backlash to this situation and the transfer ban, and really the kind of the low-quality state of the current squad. It could have led to much more dissent from the supporters, but all that is basically you know, pushed back or waved away because no one's really going to go for, for Lampard. So in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a mutually beneficial appointment in that way. Since being out in Istanbul, what kind of vibe have you got in the teams? Do you think Lampard's going to go as strong as possible? Um, or, and, and do you think Liverpool might kind of experiment a little bit after, after such a good start in the Premier League? Yeah, you'd have to think so. And maybe there'll be a bit of an alternation to the forward line. I mean, the big thing for Klopp this season is going to be keeping that, those three attackers fresh especially after the summer they all had. And really, I suppose, the last two years they've all had in terms of the amount of football they've played. And it's one of those kind of big questions that dominates Liverpool's season. Um, and I, I suppose the, the, the only news line to come out with what was quite a, a dull press <laughs> conference. As I, as I got, oh, sorry, MD minus one. had a quite a, a dull, mundane MD minus one was Sané insisting he wants to play. What about what about Adrian as well in in goal for Liverpool? I suppose it's a great opportunity for him to to have a match like this to kind of really settle in and you know if if Liverpool lose it's not the end of the world but if he puts in quite a good performance then that's going to kind of really steady his nerves ahead of the Premier League appearance. Yeah, that, that's pretty true. I mean, we're already at the stage where every Premier League game is put in the context of well we have to win because we have to keep pace with City because it's going to be another ninety point plus season. So it is quite nice that his first appearance is a game that doesn't really have that sort of pressure on it. It doesn't, so it, it isn't immediately into my that. It's kind of, a, as, we, as we said at the top, uh, a relatively inconsequential match if, uh, if you lose. In saying that, he wouldn't, really, he wouldn't want to be starting off with a mistake. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a nice, easy game to get in with. Um, it's also, I do wonder how much this is going to feel a bit like a home game for Liverpool because there's a lot more Liverpool fans here than Chelsea. Thanks for that, Miguel. We're almost out of time, but just before we go, we're going to ask you for your heroes and villains of the week. So, Tony, do you maybe want to start? Is there a, a hero you've got over the past seven days? Well, I've got a whole bunch of them. I think the City fans who, while the ver nightmare was going on, were singing, what the bleep is going on? <laughs> and, um, and, and, and the, you know, sort of the approach, the whole situation with good humour, when it went against them um, uh, initially, they, you know, they didn't complain. Then when it went in their favour, they chanted VAR. So I'm going to say something nice about City fans because I know that I know that some of them um, think the independence is against them, and we're not. <laughs> that will clear it up once and for all. And Lawrence, uh, who's been your villain? I thought uh, my villain is probably um, Jose Mourinho, the pundit. I thought he slyly took the opportunity to take a jab at one or two people, including uh, Rafa Benitez, but probably the peak was Luke Shaw saying that Harry Maguire needs to get used to covering his left back. And I thought that was just ultimate Mourinho villainy. I quite enjoyed it. 
I thought one of one of the great moments of um, watching it on TV was when Gary Neville said that when Solskjaer come in, he said the players aren't fit enough, and Martin Tyler said, "Well, whose fault's that?" and you could hear the penny dropping in Gary Neville's mind that Jose's in the studio. And he's like, uh, 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 the players? But, um, just to add to that, every new manager who takes over every new club say the players aren't fit enough. It's, they hear it all the time. Well, thank you, guys. That's all we've got time for this week, unfortunately. Uh, be sure to follow Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything going on and to read Tony and Lawrence's pieces as well that we've been discussing, as well as a whole host of other news and analysis. If you're a new listener, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.